What's up, guys? This is Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Recently on the Winging It Podcast, Vince Carter and Annie Finberg sat down with NBA All-Star Kyle Lowry and recording artist Timmy. This week, 2017 first overall pick Markel Fultz joins the show to talk about living up to expectations and working his way back from injury in the NBA. Make sure to check out Winging It on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Basketball is very good. The Raptors are the best team in the East. Phil Jackson actually saved the Knicks. Mark L. Fultz will be an all-star next year. Basketball is very good. Hello and welcome to the Ringer NBA show. This is the group chat. I am Justin Verrier. Joining me in the studio, my friend and yours, Chris Ryan. What's up, guys? And joining me on the phone, back from his staycation with the mismatch, it's Jonathan Charks. What's up, buddy? It's good to be back, y'all. Yeah, it's good to have you back, man. How was your uh, little run there with Chris Vernon? Did he treat you well? Are you okay? I survived. I mean, you guys aren't Verno, but it'll have to prove for now. Now that I'm back, now that I'm back in the minor leagues, so I'll have to. It's true. <laughs> yeah. No, don't worry about what you say here. No one's gonna break it out on Twitter or anything like that. We're just cruising, man. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> low stakes. So, in honor of Sharks' return here, we're gonna do a little uh, segment with him later in the podcast where he breaks down some lineup changes going on around the NBA. We're going to talk a little bit about the drama at Madison Square Garden, because why not? Uh, But first, let's start with the Lakers and the Sixers. Chris. They played last night. Yeah, and you were there. I was there. Reporting live from the scene. I was. Yeah. Uh, What's the big takeaway from last night's game? I was there as a civilian, though. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So that allowed me to give one faint fist pump in the first quarter when when the Sixers went up seven. You're a man of the people. Uh, I did not know that the Lakers specifically Anthony Davis, would take being down seven as a deep personal insult (laughs) and set forth to silver surfer the Sixers into oblivion for the next next three quarters. The second quarter performance I saw from Davis, when he came back in, I think it was like, I don't know, like I know when he scored was like around eight minutes left. So Mm -hmm. that 10-minute stretch is probably the best piece of individual basketball I've ever seen live in person in my life. Wow. Yeah. I feel like this happens a lot when you come back from going to see basketball games, especially Anthony Davis. I think you did this last year when you saw him. Do you yeah. remember this? Yeah. And and you're when, like, you're born again. Yeah. You, you, the wonders of basketball you have uh, Well, because you realize life. his proportions and you mm. realize like, you know, I mean, we can go through his second quarter. So essentially what happened was like the Sixers were up seven at the end of the first quarter. I don't think the Lakers really knew what to do with their small ball lineup with Mike Scott playing center. Um, and they were getting, they had some hot shooting from, from Glenn Robinson, the third, basically the new, uh, new rockets, the Sixers lineup, <laughs> but they, they looked pretty good and they yeah. looked really feisty. And then when Anthony Davis came back into the game, it was like, he just lit Al Horford on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, here's what he did after he checked back in, put back dunk pretty like a real hammer too. A corner three in Al Horford's face, a two-handed alley-oop flush up from a Rondo assist, a behind-the-back crossover dribble in traffic leading to a layup, a top-of-the-arc three, a pump fake beyond the arc leading to an uncontested and actually terrifying dunk, <laughs> then a steal off of the Sixers' point guard, I think it was Neto, leading to a coast-to-coast dunk. Also, played lockdown defense and like cheat up the crowd into a state of absolute pandemonium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's pretty good. <laughs> Eight minutes. <laughs> I know. Eight minutes. Yeah. Just to set the scene uh, for the whole game, the Lakers won this 120 to 107. Uh, no Ben Simmons, no Joel Embiid, no Josh Richardson, 
Shake Milton didn't even show out. His uh, his coming out party lasted one game I at know. the Staples Center. He wouldn't. He had the jump flu. Yeah, you know? <laughs> didn't do. One of the jump went to his head. But Sharks, you wrote about this earlier in the season. You've been kind of keeping track of Davis this season too. Uh, just about like the changes in his game. Was this kind of a a prime example of the type of player he's becoming before our eyes? Well, that's the thing is the I really want to see Davis become the main guy. I still feel like there's too much of the time where LeBron has the ball in his hands. Dave is just kind of catching lobs and playing off the ball. But it feels like the ceiling for this team is if Anthony Davis is their best player. If he's the guy creating offense, creating shots for others. I mean, he's what, 26? LeBron's 35? Mm-hmm. At some point, I feel like the torch has to be passed. Yeah, I, I think that's LeBron's... That's always been his point of view, mm-hmm. right? I, I think he was pretty active in recruiting guys this summer. He told Kawhi pretty much the same thing I think he told uh, AD, which is like, it's your t- team now. You're yeah. going to go out and do it. Uh, he was pretty effusive about AD last night, and this is LeBron speaking. Uh, this is a quote from ESPN's Dave McMinimum. Uh, it's everything I expected and more. He's talking about the trade for Anthony Davis over the summer. Obviously, that's why I wanted him here. <laughs> which is great. Uh, When you get a generational talent like that and you got an opportunity to get him, you just try to do whatever you can to get him. He's been very active in trying to prop up Anthony Davis, and it feels like it's starting to work. Is that what it kind of seems like? Well, I'll just say this, and we were chatting a little bit about this before the pod. Uh, This is maybe the most together LeBron team I think I've seen since peak heat, since the winning streak heat, since and that, that second year when they won the title. Um, just where, in, in terms of like the entire team seems to get along and, and really like work together well. and all rules are are making sense like sure. even Kuzma who I think is basically just hanging on to a rotation spot at this point and well, on certain nights at least mm-hmm. uh, I think that they're like they go with different things with different matchups but last night didn't play a ton uh, you look at the bench while whoever is out there and they are completely engaged and they've got guys like Dudley and Quinn Cook, and, and even Dwight, who has decided to become cheerleader in chief, who are up on their feet the entire game, pumping up the crowd and pumping up their teammates. When LeBron hit this deep three from practically the logo uh, against the Sixers last night, I think like it was uh, Dudley Howard and or J- JaVale and Howard did this whole thing where they like ran out onto the floor after the break and play and like pointed at the spot where LeBron had shot from and were like doing this whole like Sherlock Holmes, like, I can't believe it. Is this where it happened? Mm-hmm. Like thing. And it was like, I know that that kind of stuff is just like theater, but there is a camaraderie to this team that I think is dem- like observable. And there is a hierarchy to the team that is completely making sense. We can talk about whether or not LeBron should be more deferential to Anthony Davis, but Everybody else on this team seems to know exactly what they're supposed to do and exactly whose team it is. It reminds me a lot about the teams that LeBron had in his first run with Cleveland. Mm-hmm. There was like a momentum around LeBron as this kind of perfect teammate. The image that I remember is just LeBron taking the fake photos of his teammates as they were all posing on the sidelines. They did the whole Bucks wrestling thing, pregame thing, before the Bucks did. It was just everyone got along, everyone fell in line. I do wonder if your point about hierarchy is part of it. Like Mm -hmm. the entire league uh, split off into big twos. And while I think a team like the Clippers may be more talented, it just feels like the Lakers all work. Uh, It's just like everyone, LeBron and AD is just this devastating one too. And then everyone fills in around it. And the reason why perhaps Kuzma doesn't fit that is as we saw last night, he just wasn't drilling kick out three point opportunities, which is what he really needs for. They need role players. They don't need guys like Kuzma who's, 
probably more of like a, a an energy scorer. I was yeah. calling him last night Tamal Crawford because he's tall, <laughs> Jamal Crawford. <laughs> Charks, what are you seeing from the Lakers these you, days? Well, you know what's funny? You're talking about those old Cleveland teams, and there's something else that's similar about them too, is they fall apart when LeBron's not on the floor. Yes. So like for the year, they're minus one. And that's what I'm talking about with Davis is the number that concerns me is Davis is only averaging 3.2 assists per game. So when LeBron's not on the floor, Davis is not creating shots for his teammates, really. Yeah. He's either going one-on-one or catching lobs. And that's the hole on this team. That's why they're talking to Deion Waiters right now is because they don't have a backup <laughs> point guard. Right, right, right. They need, they need a guard who can create shots for other people because Rondo can't do it anymore. Yeah, I mean— And that, to me, is the big issue. Yeah, a guy like Reggie Jackson, we'll see how much he plays a factor in the playoffs just because of the rotations. And uh, he's playing a lot with Lou Williams, it seems like, so— uh, maybe he will, but he would have been a good addition for this team just because they oh my need gosh. more ball handlers. What? Do you agree? Oh, yeah. I, w- I was shocked when he went to the Clippers. That said a lot to me right there. Like his role in the Lakers, he'd be playing like 25 minutes a night in the, for the Lakers. Yeah. That was one of the classic, uh, like, unknown friendships in the league that only gets brought up when a transaction happens. It's like Reggie Jackson was in Paul George's wedding. You didn't know about that? Yeah, right. They yeah. like going fishing together. <laughs> it's like Alex Caruso is. He's going to play for the Heat because he and Jimmy Butler are just playing dominoes all summer. I will say it was kind of interesting to watch Rondo last night because you could he took like five threes. Because he sucks? Well, <laughs> he made a few of them. But oh, also I was like, you're shooting to keep your rotations spot like, yeah. together. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like you're like, I'm not going to do, like if it, if the if my job is essentially to set up Anthony Davis and I have to say like Rondo can still throw a really nice entry pass and really keep the ball moving and, and, and can get after it defensively sometimes. I felt like he was like, I will take the three. I'm not, I'm not too proud to like shoot this ball that might not make it to the rim, mm-hmm. or at least it looks like that in mid in mid flight. But like, you know, if Deion Waiters or or uh or, or who is the other person that they're kind of looking at? J.R. Smith, baby. And J.R. Smith are out there, those guys are not gonna be afraid to shoot it. Mm-hmm. And while I think that they want like a backup ball handler, um, you know, and Caruso didn't play last night, I, I thought it was interesting to see how aggressive Rondo was being. Yeah, I mean, those shots are open for him. Mm-hmm. He's definitely going to have to make them in order to stay on the floor because Caruso is getting better at that. I think that's why you've seen, especially the push from online for him to close a lot of games yeah. along with LeBron because he does fill that role for them. Charles, one thing you kind of always hit on about Davis was his ball handling. He's definitely kind of evolved as the years have gone on. Obviously, the story about him being a point guard when he was in high school has been played a million times by this point. But last night... You could definitely see that. He's been working on it. I remember, I've said this before, but in New Orleans, he would always do ball handling drills with the guards. And last night, was it more Al Horford not being able to keep up with him? Or was Davis just on another level being able to get around guys just driving downhill, basically? Yeah, Davis against whatever is left in Philadelphia wasn't much. He's always struggled against Joel Embiid and just Horford back there. And we can talk about that. Horford's, what, a 34-year-old small ball center on a maximum contract? Hmm. Hmm. It's kind of a concern. <laughs> it's a little bit of a concern. So, it's funny. Like, at to one be point, fair, I don't, I don't know if Bill Russell could have stopped Anthony Davis last night. You right. know what I mean? Like, I, 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 th- that was one of those, like, you, you just try to mitigate the damage mm-hmm. nights. But I think it is worth noting that Horford was signed specifically to be the other team's star stopper, or at least the big ones, you know what I mean? To yeah. get after it with Giannis to, I mean, I, I don't know if they had an eye, eye on him stopping AD in the finals. Right. Uh, but 
I mean, it was it was very clarifying. I, I I think that Horford has been playing hurt for a while. Um, I know that there probably is going to be an increasingly precipitous drop off in his physical his physicality as he gets older and older, and uh, that contract is going to start looking worse and worse. But he was having his leg worked on on the bench last night. There have been rumors that he's been a little bit banged up all year. I I don't know. I mean, I blame Horford, but it's like he was really the last line of defense back there. He looks like a hundred million dollar backup center at this point, and like the the Sixers, <laughs> Chris is uh, nodding his head. Well, no, shaking his head. Last night was clarifying, man. Yeah. Last night was like okay. I mean, it's like what? First of all, no, no Richardson, no Simmons, no Embiid. So it's like, what are we really talking about? Sure. And if you you want my silver lining playbook, mm-hmm. it was a good experience for guys like Burks and Robinson because the Sixers will need them to feel confident in their shot and in their playmaking in the playoffs. Like, they don't want them to be like, oh, what am I, where am I supposed to stand? Am I allowed to shoot? Whatever. Like, mm-hmm. So it, I, it was nice to see Glenn Robinson, like, take some threes, be aggressive. But I felt like uh, it was like almost watching, like, a pre, pre-Titans process team last night. Like, mm. before the NBA and, and Simmons wrote their rise. It's like almost like a road-not-taken team. It was like if you had just surrounded the stars you could get, like Horford and Harris— with like scrapyard guys, mm-hmm. and and they had been stuck in the middle gears forever. Mm-hmm. Um, like if Doug Collins had never left the Sixers, I could imagine that being the Sixers team. Brought back a lot of fond memories of Tony Roten <laughs> just going after it. Well, no, I mean it, it's like you're <laughs> nice. Yeah, I mean it, I just think that there was a lot of like running off the boards, running off rebounds, and they took nine more threes than they averaged last night. So they clearly were just like, let's just see if we can shoot our way into a surprise win here. Um, you know, the shake thing. I like it. I love it. You know, it, it feels very Flip Murray-esque to me. Mm. But uh, yeah, I mean. Oh, I love that Flip Murray has come, become shorthand for a guy who popped off and then we never heard from him again. Right. right. <laughs> so, so, um, maybe damning the faint praise there. Charks, is, is L. Horford cooked? <laughs> I think that's the first question I want to ask you. Well, I, he was, as Chris kind of like alluded to, he was brought in to unlock Ben Simmons. That's why they paid him $100 million, right? Was to be the stretch five for Simmons, to play that one specific role. So without Simmons there, he just doesn't have much of a point. So, I mean, like, he's not going to lead a team anymore. He's getting older. Really, yeah, he depends on Simmons to create shots for him, and then he spaced the floor for Simmons. That's his role. That's why he's there. And if Simmons isn't there, he's just not that valuable. Yeah, and I guess Brett Brown pretty much, like, admitted that with his rotations before all these injuries kind of struck, putting... Horford more in that second unit, with playing him more with Ben, playing him fewer minutes alongside Joel Embiid. Charks, which of these young guys, as we look at kind of uh, the new process guys kind of stepping up here, some of the Corkmazes, the Miltons, for you, who is the most interesting one of those who could maybe make a, a difference maybe down the line here? I got to give love to my guy, Shake Milton, SMU legend. Oh, he's right. from uh, Texas I forever, see him baby. Play for like three years. Yeah, I mean, he's a really, really big shooter who played point guard in college. He has like a seven-foot wingspan. He was always like a 40% three-point shooter. And he's not a great athlete, but he's freaking huge. So that that combination of skills, I think, could find him a role in the playoffs. Whereas Korkmaz is not going to be able to defend. Thibault is the shot there. It's the combination of both, I think, gives Milton the edge. I also wonder like how much we're giving him credit just because he has a cool name. Oh, yeah. I always it worry helps. about guys like this. If his, he was just Malik, which he, is his actual or, name. like Dave Milton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one thing that sticks out to me about last night, though, is did Tobias Harris play? Yes. And he had a quiet 
20 or whatever, 18 or whatever. Yeah. That concerns me about as much as Horford because while Horford has legitimate injury concerns, he's getting older, you could really tag it to something physical. Tobias is just like every opportunity was there available for you and you did nothing. I think you're points. just seeing the fact that like he's the third option even when he's the first option. If he's the first option, he's still going to score like a third option. Right. So I, I'm not going to get mad at Tobias Harris for just being exactly who Tobias Harris is. I, I never thought, oh, if there's like a catastrophic event and Joel Embiid and J- Ben Simmons are out at the same time, Tobias Harris will be able to go into LA and beat the Clippers and the Lakers single-handedly. Mm-hmm. Should have got paid a lot more money if that was the case. <laughs> right. Uh, so how are you feeling overall fine. about your journey to, to see the, the young I, Sixers? Let's just, I'm fine. They Basically, what's going to happen is they're going to get the six seed and I'm going to have an incredibly uncomfortable first week of the NBA playoffs where my <laughs> boss's team... Is playing against my team again. Yeah, they'll play that tweet that they yeah. always do around this time. And of there's, we're going to relitigate Jason Tatum. We're yeah. going to relitigate Fultz. We're going to talk about, you know, whether or not Brad Wanamaker would be the best player on the Sixers. Like all the things that I can't wait for it are going to happen. And and then we'll be where we're at. In Kevin O'Connor's uh, Jason Tatum feature, which we ran on Tuesday, mm-hmm. there's there's something from Danny Ainge where it basically outlines how they they brought Fultz in for that second workout and immediately knew, like, nah. <laughs> and so that's why they made the trade. Uh-huh. It's just, like, it really detailed and put color to uh, the Sixers' anguish, like, in real time, where it's like the Celtics saw this coming. Or maybe not this specifically, but at the very least, they saw the red flags and they got away from it as quickly as possible. Yeah, I love that detail. <laughs> when right. is Embiid coming back? Is, is there, like, a timeline for that? I think he was only supposed to be out about a week. or a re- See, this is the... This really frustrating thing about the Reevaluated after two weeks. I yeah. Think it was, yeah. And it, or Simmons was reevaluated after two weeks. And Embiid, I think, was one. Yeah. I am much more optimistic that we will see Embiid again this season than Simmons. Yeah. Is there like a world where Simmons just doesn't come back for the playoffs? For sure. <laughs> These back things are very troubling. Yes. Uh, yeah, for sure. Especially because like we only heard kind of, was there any like, word about him having a back issue before this ended up happening, it feels like it kind of just popped out of nowhere. Not to my knowledge. <laughs> I'm being completely sincere. I, I, that was the yeah. first I heard about him having a back problem. I don't think he's like, I, huh. I, you know what? I don't, this is so funny. It's like when you, when you get really invested in a, in a team and especially a player, you start like, I'm not his fucking chiropractor. I have no idea <laughs> if his back has been bothering him for a long time. Yeah, I think that you could get on Brett's case for playing Simmons a lot of minutes, and I wish the team was better than they are so that they would be up 20 in fourth quarters and not have to play Ben Simmons in the fourth quarter the way Giannis and Chris Middleton get to, like, read novels on the bench for most of these buck games. Right. But, look, you know, we don't want to turn this into a Sixers pod. God forbid. <laughs> the cruel irony that we did not get a Sixers medical update about this back injury before it actually happened. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, do you want to talk about another team that's uh, in disarray Let's talk here? about the Knicks. <laughs> Let's talk about the Knicks here. So you may have heard by now that they're in yet another feud. It took all of one day, I believe, into the Leon Rose era before James Dolan uh, started a fight with another uh, Knicks fan luminary, whatever you want to call it, a, a New York legend, let's just say. So I'm going to try to run down the specifics of the event, and then we can take it from there because it's really hard to process. And like even as I was going through it, I'm like, what is actually happening here? So... Here's what I have. Uh, A kind of kerfuffle broke out over Spike Lee allegedly using the wrong entrance at MSG. Uh, Video of said kerfuffle. I'm really just forcing this word into the situation. Uh, You you should just say incident. Incident. (laughs) Yeah. 
Thank you for editing me. I appreciate well, that. No, no, it's a good edit. It's a good note, man. Thanks. Uh, that video circulated Monday night. Uh, Spike then went on first take, as one does, to blast Dolan, uh, saying that he was done with the Knicks for the season. Just for the season. Which is like, first of all, like, what a threat there. I just won't come back for, like, 10 more games right. of this terrible basketball team. But if Leon Rose <laughs> trades for Bradley Beal and we get the number one pick, like, I'm back. Right, yeah, yeah. I'll be right there. Uh, and then he, uh, so, And then this whole thing broke out where he says he didn't shake Jim Dolan's hand. And yet... The, the Knicks claim that he did. And so the Knicks, so after Spike goes on first take, the Knicks release a statement as they often do in order to uh, lash back at people who are saying things about them. They called Spike's version laughable in quotes. And they had two photos uh, within the, the tweet that they sent out with the, this press release. Uh, one was of an entrance at MSG that said the entrance was for employees, media, and patrons with disabilities only. And then a very grainy photo. Mm-hmm. Of what appears to be Spike shaking Jim Dolan's hand at that game uh, on the sidelines. Yep. Did I get everything? I think so. Okay. Yeah. So that's where we are today. Chris, what do you make of this? I think that it's remarkable that the Knicks have this ability to antagonize the exact wrong franchise icons and fans. It's like they get after it with the guys who are like, you know what I have time to do tomorrow? Go on first take. <laughs> it's not like, oh, I, you know, I'm busy. You know, I got like a meeting tomorrow. And it's like, you know what? Let's just like handle this behind closed doors. Like, no, you guys go after Charles Oakley and Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. You know, and Charles Oakley and Spike Lee are like, why, yes, first ESPN <laughs> booker. I am available to come down to the waterfront to go on first take <laughs> this morning. Um, I, I think that anytime you get into a situation where one of the most acclaimed filmmakers of the last 40 years is invoking his mother's grave to prove his like bona fides in a situation. You just, you, you gotta, you gotta get yourself into that scenario. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you were the most forgiving person in the world, the one consistent factor in all of these Knicks controversies is Dolan. Mm-hmm. So I don't know really what changes. If you bring in Leon Rose, if you bring in, Sam Hinkie and Billy Bean and Theo Epstein right, Brad and Pitt. Paul DePodesta. Yeah, yeah right. I, I mean, <laughs> I don't really know what different culture changes can go ha- can happen at this place. Um, there's there's always just going to be this guy at the top who's like, but the thing is, <laughs> that fucking guy is using the wrong door, right. and I am going to make a national sports story out of it. Right. Sharks, what's your take on this? It's one of those things that could only happen in New York because nobody would care if it happened anywhere else. Right? <laughs> That's a very good point. This is some coastal elitist shit right here. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Spike Lee can go on first. I get shot in New York, so he can just, you know, take a cab. But, you know, the Knicks speak with some famous fan who's only famous because he's in New York. What's the difference, really? You don't think that if this happened to Tony Romo in Dallas that people would be up in arms right now? Well, the Mavs actually banned their like celebrity fan last year for cussing out Patrick Beverly. But like the Mavs <laughs> celebrity fan is a realtor in Dallas. Like, oh, no great. one cares. <laughs> that's great. It's like the one in, in uh, New Orleans is Morris Bart, this like lawyer who just who's on like billboards. He's basically the better call Saul of <laughs> New Orleans. And at one point I tweeted like, yeah, Morris Bart is just hanging out with DeMarcus Cousins. Someone's like, that, don't say that about Morris Bart. <laughs> he's, a, he's a big contributor to, to the Pelicans franchise. I'm like, oh God, give me a fucking break. Oh my God. Uh, do you want to hear the most unpopular opinion about this whole situation. Are you going to pivot to Dolan? 
I'm not going to take his are you side. Zag- are you zagging? <laughs> I'm zagging, though. I think that celebrities shouldn't be favored. If you have, if there's a door you should be going through, go through the right door, man. We live in Bernie's country are, no, now. No, no, no. Are you going pro-rules or are you going yeah. democratic socialism? <laughs> I mean, why choose, my friend? So <laughs> I definitely think that this is just a situation where, like, there's another part of this that we aren't hearing about. But I don't think it's necessarily favorable towards the Knicks. Yeah, this is actually a pro-doors okay. take, really. No, but I agree that— I find it hard to believe that Spike Lee all of a sudden started going <laughs> through the wrong door. You don't know that? I want the specifics about his door behavior right. first. I want I want the investigation to be fully done before I criticize the Knicks for sure. going forward. With this. I think in most NBA stadiums, there is a fluidity of who can use what door <laughs> based on a hierarchy— of their relationship to star players, to ownership, and to, uh, yeah, and just and just in general, like, their relationship to the franchise. One would think, given his steadfast support of the New York Knicks over the decades, that Spike Lee had earned himself a special place in the door culture <laughs> of Madison Square Garden. Yeah. What door did you, you use know, last, last night? night? Well, I was going to say, like, yeah, what was your door? A staple Center, Chris. <laughs> I, I, as a paying person, yeah. like last night, I went through the same door as everybody else. Wow. Man, music exists. This is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But I did have a pretty good vantage point of the front row of the courtside Lakers situation. And, you know, you see Mav, see Rich, see Katzenberg. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. all the bigs. There's a a lot of like, hey, I'm just going to step into the tunnel here for a second. Nobody's jumping those guys. Nobody's saying, hey, can't do that. You know, Mm -hmm. like there's an ecosystem there. I don't know what the ecosystem is at MSG, but if I had to guess, I don't think that last night Spike Lee or two nights ago, Spike Lee just went out of his mind and decided to use the different door. Hmm. But maybe I'm wrong. I want to know more about so the So if doors. you were there with uh, if you were there with Klosterman, would you get that door, you think? <laughs> if I was there with Klosterman, I think I would have been sitting next to uh, Jason Kidd and Lionel Hollins. <laughs> yeah. I mean, despite my, my pro door stance here, I, my big question is just why? Like, why make this a thing? Like, there, it, you really didn't have to do much in order to completely avoid this, which seems to be the case with almost all of the more recent events at MSG. Just why do this? And they always seem to do it. On the other hand, let me play devil's advocate here. You're just, you're zagging yourself I'm, z- I'm zagging again. Who among us doesn't just, like, get mad and go on, on Twitter and just say things, you know? I don't. <laughs> this is why you're going through the right doors, my friend. Uh, we'll take a quick break there. Uh, Chris is going to leave us in order to talk about music uh, with some other more popular people. Uh, but Sharks and I will be with back. With Mav and Rich. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Sharks and I will be back to talk about some lineups after this. Today's episode of the Ringer NBA Show is brought to you by Microsoft Teams. Hey, NBA Show fans, we all know meetings. Struggling to pay attention? Files seem impossible to find? We're secretly streaming the game on our laptop while nervously tapping our foot below the conference room table. And if you're not in a room, you're not in the know. Luckily, there's a solution for all the meeting-related issues that we constantly complain about. Welcome to the new slam dunk to work together, Microsoft Teams. Using Microsoft Teams is one play that's guaranteed to work every time, where you can contribute to meetings from anywhere, even on the court. Chat with coworkers so you're never out of the loop. Find all your files and even edit them in real time in one convenient place. The greatest NBA teams have mastered the art of communication and organization. When you're ready to unleash the power of your team, open Teams. Because meetings of the past are for rookies, right? 
There is nothing worse than having to go to a meeting at a time that you don't have to be there anyway. So, like, you have to go to some kind of early meeting when you wouldn't normally be there that early, and then you've gone to a meeting that probably wasn't even about you, and then you got to sit around for a long time. I'd give anything to have Microsoft Teams, because then I could just pull up my computer, and now I'm, I'm part of the meeting, and I don't have to be down at the office for the meeting that wasn't about me anyway. Learn more about how to improve your work efficiency at Microsoft.com slash Teams. That's Microsoft.com slash Teams. All right, we're back. It's Charks and, and JV time. A little bit of alone time, which means we get to talk about some really deep cup nerdy stuff here. Charks, are you excited? With Chris gone, it's all, it's all us. No one's listening. We're just having fun now. It's great. Uh, we need a name for this segment. Uh, so if anybody at home has a good one, uh, we were trying to come up with good Charks puns, but I feel like we've used them all. So currently I have this down as line them up, uh, John Charks joint. Uh, we'll go for We'll go forward with that for the time being. But basically Charks is doing these pieces uh, for the website where he looks at some of the bigger lineup adjustments going around on the league. And obviously these things are becoming more and more important as we get to the playoffs, specifically for playoff teams, perhaps not as much for the Cavs. Although, man, how are they going to get Darius Garland and, and Colin Sexton to work, man? I don't know. But so Kevin Porter, baby. <laughs> yes. And Kevin Porter, uh, a ringer favorite. Go read his, uh, his profile that Paolo Getty did leading into the draft. Anyway, Today, Sharks, uh, we're going to talk about the Heat and the Clippers. So uh, let's start with the Heat first. The big question there is where does Andre Iguodala, their new prize wing, fit into the rotation? He's been having some issues there, no? Yeah, they kind of started him out playing a lot, and his minutes have been gradually getting cut over the last two weeks. And on one hand, yes, he's 36, and he hasn't played in you know six months or nine months. So it makes sense that he's a little rusty. But it does feel like there's some structural issues in Miami that are going to keep him from kind of doing what we saw in Golden State. So like for all the excitement about Iguodala and the trade, he can't shoot threes, and he's playing with two guys who don't shoot threes either and Bam and Jimmy. And that to me is like, that's a pretty big red flag. Yeah, I mean, because any significant lineup, he's going to have to play with both of them. Like they're going to be at the end of games, obviously. They're two best players. Right, right. So if those are two best players at the end of games... Can Iguodala play? And yeah, there were a couple of games in uh, against Atlanta and Minnesota where they blew massive leads at the end of games. And in they've only played 26 minutes together, those three guys, and they're minus 51. Yikes. And you can say small sample size, which is obviously a small sample size, but it was a big enough sample size that Spolstra stopped doing it. He said, enough of this. And he's really cut Iguodala's minutes to only playing with the second unit. Right. And so we're talking about the Heat when they just came off of perhaps their biggest win of the season, perhaps the Bucks' biggest loss of the season, uh, they sh- absolutely shellacked them in that game. But there is a pretty big disparity between when they're playing Andre Iguodala more and playing him less in his first seven games with the Heat following that trade uh, involving the Grizzlies. Uh, the Heat were 2-5. and five. The last three, they are 3-0. and oh, And that coincides, Sharks, with them pretty much just not playing him as much uh, over his first seven, Andre Iguodala. He played 20 minutes over the last three. He played 13 and a half. Uh, so there's, for, in your perspective, there's a correlation there. Yeah, and it's kind of funny. We all talked about Iguodala, but Jay Crowder's been the guy who's been playing a ton. He's playing almost, he's playing 30 minutes a game in Miami, almost twice as many as Iggy, because he can shoot threes. Right. 
Yeah, so I guess the big question here is, do the Heat have this season the right combination of guys in order to play Iguodala in those key moments? It just doesn't seem like it. You go back to Golden State, so Iggy was playing with Clay and Steph and KD, and he didn't really have to do too much on offense, and he didn't, and he wasn't being guarded back then, right? Like he was always a guy you left open, but those guys shot so well it didn't really matter. But now if you're leaving Iguodala open and you're playing him with Jimmy and Bam, there's just no room on the court. Right. And as we've seen as the months kind of go by here and the Heat's surprise season and their exciting start kind of gives way to something a little bit more mixed, I'd say is fair. Uh, the defense has really been an issue. Uh, Rob Mahoney wrote about it on Monday. Yeah, that was a good article, yeah. Yeah, r- right, bef- right before the Bucks game. <laughs> <laughs> right before perhaps one of their best defensive performances of the season, which, like, we have had the worst luck this week, in- including, like, didn't you write about Giannis right after that game as well? Yeah, I read the article about how, how awesome he was. And he, like, he has, like, the worst game of the season. <laughs> so just bad editorial uh, uh, timing there. We'll take the L on that one. I blame you. You are the editor, Justin. Yeah, so I we'll know, blame you for I know. that. Well, Matt is now your editor, so we'll blame Matt Dollinger. Uh, that's how we get around this. We blame somebody else. That's that's the... the Figure pointing is always good. Yes. That's the key at the ringer. Yes, but uh, I think the defense is going to be a concern, and I think in part just because of the type of guys they have there. Like, Duncan Robinson is a big part of this team. Uh, he's starting for them and playing significant minutes, and yet he's really good as a shooter and providing spacing for the guys, but, like, is he a significant defender? Are you going to be able to trust him? Uh, late in games, and like Tyler Hero hasn't been uh, in the lineup. He's been hurt lately, but he's another guy, shooter, probably not an accomplished defender. And you'd hope that a guy like Iguodala, you'd get him, be able to throw him in the mix there, and you'd take pressure off of guys like Jimmy Butler. Butler, who's doing a lot in both ends, would be able to like focus on offense where he's been a significant factor, especially holding the ball for the Heat. But in this scenario, it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to rely on Iguodala and so, does it really just come down to Jay Crowder basically being what they expected Iguodala to be? You wonder. It's, it's funny. So, we, we always talk about how Joel and Ben, they don't space the floor well enough to play with each other. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy stopped shooting threes on Miami. Him and Bam shoot fewer threes than Embiid does this season. Wait, so, so and it's, uh, is, is the take you're trying out here that Jimmy and Bam are the new Joe and Ben? I just think there's some structural issues when your two best players never shoot threes. Wow. See, what because what, what, hap- what happens is, is that means your other three spots in the lineup all have to be great shooters, mm-hmm. right? If you're not getting spacing from two of the five spots. But then the problem is, okay, if you're getting great shooting from the other three spots, what are the odds you can find three great 3 and D players, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah, if you had Clay Thompson and Robert Covington and Danny Green, it'd be fine. But for the most part, most elite shooters aren't great defensive players. So you kind of have to walk a really narrow window. And what the Heat have been doing most of the season is they're playing bad defenders in those spots. And they're playing a lot of like gimmick defenses. I think they played the most zone in the league, I'm pretty sure. And that's because they're playing so many bad defenders. They're trying to hide them out. They're trying to hide Tyler Hero, hide Duncan Robinson. And if you're and it's just that's that's gonna be a harder and harder like lane to draw in the playoffs, I feel like. So are we at the point now in the NBA where you can only really have one non-shooter or one poor shooter on the floor? Has it gotten to that point? It feels like. I mean, really, it's almost the point where you can only have zero non-shooters where yeah. things are going. Yeah. And but you, yeah, you can have one guy who gets at the rim. So if you have two guys, you're already kind of really close. Right. And that's why we've seen Russell Westbrook kind of take off in Houston these days when he is functionally the non-shooter slash center, however you want to designate him. 
But I mean, if you're going to find a silver lining, that Bucks game is, is probably the prime example of it. Bam, in particular, seemed to do a great job against Giannis. And at some point, you would think if uh, the Heat want to get out of the East, if that is indeed like a possibility this year, they'll have to beat the Bucks. Is it? Did you learn anything from that game specifically that like perhaps was a, a, could carry on and perhaps solve this issue? Yeah, that was a very impressive win. And they did a great job of crowding Giannis. Bam did a great job. But also... Milwaukee shot seven of 34 from three in that game, Hmm. right? Like if the other team is not shooting threes then you can pack the paint on them and it doesn't matter. But what are the odds in a series where Miami's going to shoot 49% from three and Milwaukee's going to shoot 20% from three when Milwaukee has way better shooters than Miami as a whole. Right. And that's the whole thing with Milwaukee, right? If you, if you just like, if they get cold from three or the other team gets hot from three, they could lose one game. But how do you do that four times? Yeah, the thing that in that game that stood out to me is the guys you leave open for Milwaukee, it's really, it's Bledsoe and Brooke Lopez. That was what stood out to me watching that, was Lopez has not shot threes well at all this year. I think he's like 29%. Yeah, it's been bad. That last year might have kind of been a, a little bit of an outlier. And if I'm playing Milwaukee, I'm leaving him wide open. I'm leaving Eric Bledsoe wide open. And I'm saying, you guys can shoot as much as you want. I'm packing the paint on Giannis. And I, what I want to see from the Bucks is whether they make those adjustments. It feels like Buttonholzer doesn't like really make adjustments. That's always been a knock on him. Mm-hmm. And if like his best players aren't performing, will he take them off in the end of the games? Right. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see about the Bucks. But for the Heat going forward, uh, it, what's the solution here to their Iguodala problems? Is it just to keep limiting his minutes and hope that he just kind of rounds out into the player he used to be? I wouldn't mind seeing Jimmy take some threes. Like, there's <laughs> no too. reason that he stopped taking them. Right. He used to be a decent enough shooter. He's never been a great shooter, but... He's taking fewer threes this season than he has like in four or five years. And there's no reason he has to be like DeMar DeRozan, right? Like if Jimmy wants to win a championship, open it up, man. Take some shots. Those are shots going to be there for you. You need to take them. Because they can probably play Jay Crowder more. They're going to have to hope Kendrick Dunn can play defense. They're not playing Solomon Hill at all. <laughs> Which but is probably, that's a good probably not going to change now. Yeah. You had a good year in Memphis. I mean, I think you got to hope that Butler and Iguodala can piece together enough three point shooting, right? They're both streaky shooters who don't take a lot of threes, but can they get to like, I don't know, three or four or five in a, in a big playoff game between the two of them? Right. Yeah. And the thing with Iguodala is they do have some time kind of to figure this out if they don't really figure it out for this season. Uh, they signed him as part of that trade with Memphis to a two-year extension on top of this season where they're going to pay him $15 million in each of those years. The second year is a team option. You'd expect them considering the high hopes they have in free agency for that summer to decline that. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, Jimmy Butler is shooting, as I'm looking at this, 25% from three. He's shooting only two a game, basically, which is the fewest he's had since like his third year in the league. Uh, so we'll keep tracking that with the Heat. But uh, let's turn the page to the West here now. Uh, the Clippers are... They've had a little bit of a a panic, I guess you would say, or at the very least, we've had a little bit of panic about the Clippers where uh, it didn't seem like they were playing up to our expectations. Uh, A few losses here and there, Paul George in and out of the lineup, yada, yada, yada. And then all of a sudden they've reeled off significant wins of late. Uh, They've looked as good as we've expected them to. Uh, Zach Cram wrote for the ringer on Monday, basically just calm down about the Clippers because when they do play all of their guys, when they're healthy, when Paul George and Kawhi Leonard played, they're uh, as amazing as we think they are. Uh, but Charks, you're specifically looking at their second unit, which is kind of how they rose to prominence last year without a star for you is the Clippers bench back. Yeah. We talked about Reggie Jackson earlier 
And he's now their third or fourth best player on their bench, which is pretty insane considering he was a starting point guard last season on a playoff team, right? When you're like, he wasn't great, but when you're talking about a backup point guard, it's like, man, Reggie Jackson's your backup point guard. So like their second unit now is Reggie Jackson, Lou Williams, Landry Shamit, Jamichael Green, Montrez Harrell. That is ridiculous for a bench. Just absolutely absurd. You have two of the best bench players in the league, a former starting point guard, and then two 3 and D guys as your ninth and 10th men. And so they haven't played much together yet, but in 48 minutes so far, they're plus 40. And obviously, once again, small sample size, but look at the names of those, those players in that list. Like Those are all really good players who fit together perfectly. There's no reason to think they won't keep going forward being successful, much in the regular season. Yeah, I think the fear with Reggie Jackson was just that he would be Detroit Reggie Jackson or late-era Oklahoma City Reggie Jackson where he would just kind of take shots and, and want to be the guy. It does seem like, for whatever reason, maybe he's playing with his best friend, Paul George, or if he's just like recognizing where he is at this point in his career, where he best fits. And he's really just done a really great job weaving his way into that situation to the point where like I didn't think he and Lou Williams would be able to play together, but they have played a good amount together. Uh I do wonder, like, is Reggie Jackson, like, going to be a playoff contributor? I was I was thinking of him more as just a guy who would get them through the regular season. But it kind of seems like they can run this team, like, almost 10 deep into the playoffs. He's just so big. You forget that he's a 6'3 guy. I think he has, like, a 7-foot wingspan. He's freaking huge. And he's on his best behavior because he wants a new contract. He's not going to rock the boat in the Clippers. He's going to like play within a smaller role. And he does have experience from his time on OKC not being a starter. So he knows how to come into games. He has the size to guard multiple positions. And it just gives the Clippers so many options. And like even beyond like the, the, this full second unit, they just have so many different ways they can attack you right now. They can find your weak spot. They can play nine or ten guys and without losing much on either side of the ball. And that's... Like, they're really... See the game against the Nuggets where they just blew them off the floor? Yeah. It was like, I think last Friday. Mm-hmm. It was... Yep. That was kind of a statement of intent. Like, all right, we got all our players now, and now we're just going to rock teams. Yeah, it, it does feel like whenever the Clippers do want to make a point, they can. Uh, and a lot of that revolves around Paul George being healthy and engaged. Uh, there had been some whispers just in the background just about how, you know, he had, they, they shelled out their entire future for Paul George and while the injuries, there's nothing you could really do about that. He just like hasn't played that much. Uh, it's, there are certain times where he perhaps wasn't being wasn't as engaged. But I think all of the issues that the Clippers had are all pretty fixable. They're all if, if we're categorizing like problems based on a scale, they're probably the better problems you could have here. Where it's just like be more interested in what's happening and just like pray for health. And so uh, it's been really encouraging to see what they've been able to do. Talking about like a statement game, I remember there was a game in Dallas earlier this season where the Mavs were on a big hot streak. The Clippers come into town, and then it was like, oh, we'll put Kawhi on Luka. Don't put Paul George on Luka. Don't put Beverly on Luka. It's like, oh my gosh. Luka didn't know what hit him. Right. Just like three guys that good defensively who can play on both ends of the floor. It's This team is really coming together, it seems like. Yeah. And I think the good thing is they also have options. And so... Uh, trying to piece together perhaps their best lineup. I don't know. Where do you stand on this? Because I think there are two schools of thoughts where it's good to have versatility in your roster. The Clippers perhaps have the best versatility in the league just considering the amount of wings they have and the guys, uh, specifically big wings who can guard bigger guys. 
But I think there are some people who might say, well, you need your set five. You need to go, you need to know who are your five guys in crunch time. For you, where do you fall? I'd say I'm more in the first camp. You look at Toronto last year, they were always moving things around with Nurse. When you get to the latter ends of the playoff, it's just all about finding the best matchups. And with the Clippers, however you want to play, they can play. If they end up playing the Rockets in the first round, they could play Marcus Morris at the five. They're the one team that if the, the Rockets can't really go small against and have much, have a huge advantage because they can go small without any difficulty. And then if they play the Nuggets, they can play Zubach, they can play bigger. I think that versatility is huge. And you've seen Doc Rivers in the past. For like, The one thing Doc does pretty well is he manages egos, he controls the locker room, and he's a pretty good matchup coach in the playoffs. And that, that's the kind of thing I think can be just huge down the road. Right. So most likely, you'll probably see those three wings in most crunch time scenarios, George, Kawhi, Morris. Is that fair? Or would you probably not see Morris and maybe more Beverly? I think you would see Morris just because of how big he is. Like now you have three six foot seven guys who can slide, guard multiple positions and space the floor and attack you off the dribble. Really, it's more about like with Doc, like can Morris, can they get Morris to not take too many bad shots? Because it's the same with like Reggie Jackson, because he's going from being the first option to being like the fourth or fifth option. And that's what we're saying about like, these are good problems to have. The Lakers are like, can we find a way to get Alex Crusoe more shots? Can we get our like eighth man to play like a third third option? Whereas the Clippers are trying to like, can we make our fifth option who was a star somewhere else be in a smaller role? That's not a bad situation to have. I think my guess would be you'd go Morris, Kawhi, George, probably Harold in most situations. So that gives you four, six, seven guys who can guard multiple positions. Then you can either play Lou Williams for scoring, Beverly for defense, Shamit for size, Jackson for kind of a combination of those. They just have a lot of options. Right. I do love that they've been able to take Detroit guys specifically and basically rehab their careers. Uh, first, it was Tobias Harris, who was he played well for Detroit, uh, but wasn't on like all-star level until he got to the, to the Clippers that season. Uh, but now Reggie Jackson, Marcus Morris even had a cup of coffee two seasons, I believe, with Detroit in which he became the LeBron stopper based on a sample size of like two games. But it is funny how guys go into that system, play more of a fourth or fifth role, and all of a sudden they're just much better at what they do. Um, as you're looking at the landscape, though, because the biggest question with the Clippers is where do they stand in kind of the elite tier of the NBA and the, the hierarchy because this team is built for the title. Among the teams that they could face on that road, which is the one that gives you the most pause? Which which is the team that's probably the worst matchup for them? I don't think there's one that is like the worst matchup. That's what makes them so dangerous is they can play so many styles. There's not like one Achilles heel. To me, if you're going to beat the Clippers, you're going to need somebody to be better than Kawhi. And when I look across the league, I only see one player who could do that. And that's Giannis. I thought at the beginning of the season it was going to end up being Kawhi versus Giannis in the finals, and I'm still kind of leaning that way. Is Kawhi got Giannis last year? Can Giannis get Kawhi this year? Because in terms of lineups and playing smaller, Milwaukee can match up with them, and then it then it comes down to your best player versus your best players, and then like in the West, who's going to be better than Kawhi in a playoff series at this point? It's hard for me to believe LeBron is anymore. Or then you go to like the Rockets, right? So with the Rockets. Kawhi and Paul George can guard Harden and Westbrook, but Harden and Westbrook can't guard them. Mm-hmm. And to me, that gives you such an edge in a playoff series when your best players are that versatile. Yeah, but what if they get to the NBA Finals and someone has to guard Shake Milton? What do they do then? <laughs> <laughs> 
Love it. All right, that's a good place to stop here. Texas forever, baby. Uh, We will be back next week, probably with Chris and Sharks in tow. Until then, we will talk to you later. Basketball is very good. Basketball is very good.